Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, and a happy new year to you wherever you are in the UK and around the world. Well, 2021 was quite a year, and I think together, and it really was together, we helped to try and make sense of the layers of madness, and we will have to do the same in 2022. There is so much that's going to happen in this year, and we need to delve deep to make sense of it all. And we'll be beginning today, if that's okay with all of you. Some fantastic questions came in over Christmas and the new year. And I'll reflect on a couple of the themes which I think will uh, dominate in the coming 12 months uh, briefly. Um, There will be others uh, and they will come up each week inevitably. So there's all of that to come in our time together today for the first time in 2022. Uh, Great questions on all kinds of things. the role of Blair, quite a bit about Blair creeping in, maybe because he got the knighthood. Uh, you know, finally the Queen gave him uh, a knighthood. It took many years. Uh, John Major got one after about 10 minutes. Anyway, before I begin with a couple of uh, New Year thoughts, just a couple of things. First of all, those of you who asked for stickers for books, uh, the Prime Ministers we never had, I hope I got them all to you. If I didn't, please email me and I'll, I'll I'll do it belatedly and you can sort of tell the recipient it's here. A signature with a message, a distinct message. Um, but I hope most of you got those. And um, the other thing is, yeah, the first live rock and roll politics is on Monday, the January the 24th at King's Place. Great if you can come along. We'll make sense of things there the start of the year we'll look ahead and delve deep have some fun as well that's live at king's place but it's also being streamed live so for those of you listening in australia canada america europe uh who can't quite just get to king's place uh it's being streamed live as well and the tickets are available on the king's place website so that's uh, that's it for the notices. And now let's have a couple of reflections, if it's okay with you, from me before we return to all of you with thoughts and uh, questions. Uh, one of my very safe predictions, and by the way, uh, just a spoiler alert, I'm not going to do will Boris Johnson survive, will Keir Starmer survive, etc. in the coming year, because you know what? I don't know. Um, My experience from writing the Prime Ministers we never had is that Prime Ministers endure longer than we assume they will. But I don't know whether that will apply to Boris Johnson. It will be a running theme anyway in our time together in this year. So that's not going to be uh, one of the predictions. I'm going to make a really safe one. And that is cost of living, inflation... Uh, will rage as a theme. And of course, it's all interconnected. Uh, Brexit and the hardest of possible Brexit uh, will be responsible for some of the shortages. Shortages drive price rises, etc. But the one that is already commanding huge amounts of attention is the gas price. And when those bills come in, 
after a cold winter, if we get a cold winter, and even if we don't, uh, it will be a huge story because the rises will be very high. And it will be a huge story on one level, in a way the least interesting, though significant. Will Sunak intervene to, in effect, subsidise those prices one way or another? In which case, where does that leave the government's commitment to a sort of green agenda? So all of that incorporates the sincerity question mark of the green commitments, uh, Sunak's free market, Thatcherite instincts versus Johnson's sort of capacity for an erratic interventionism. All the familiar themes of 2021 will collide again over the price rises people will experience over their gas bills. But it raises a more fundamental question, which in a way is one of the great taboos and has been since the 1980s, which is ownership and markets. Because what is becoming increasingly clear is that this gas market simply doesn't work, and the regulatory interventions don't work either. It's very interesting, the price cap, which when Ed Miliband first proposed it, when he was leader of the opposition, uh, it was reported as if this was a sort of uh, lapse into 1970s kind of semi-Stalinist uh, centralization and outrageous interventions in the marketplace. When Theresa May introduced it uh, and uh, was accepted by Boris Johnson, few questioned it that this intervention was necessary. Now the question is slightly different, but with profound implications, I think, which is whether really the price intervention works on two different levels. One, um, whether it actually can effectively protect customers when prices start to soar. Because at the moment, as things stand, though that might change if Johnson could persuade Sunak to become an interventionist again, uh, prices will still be high. The cap will go up and up because there is a gas shortage, especially in the UK where there's no long-term planning, uh, and therefore the prices soar. And the cap has to soar or else all the energy companies go bust. This energy market is not about the supply of gas, but about the gambling on the gas price at any given time. And the idea recently to make the market more effective, of course, was to allow smaller companies to set up as competition to those that in effect had a kind of monopoly on supply. Uh, however, as we all know, when prices soar beyond uh, anything like anticipated by these companies as they gambled on the price of gas to get customers in, uh, the companies go bust. And then you have two things having to happen. The price cap goes up to the point that it ceases to be protective to those without much money to uh, meet the price rises. Uh, and you return to the old market because all the smaller companies have gone bust, having gambled and failed uh, in this bizarre market of predicting what the gas price will be at any given time. And so 
with this sort of new regulatory framework of encouraging smaller companies to come in to compete against the bigger ones that had a monopoly and a price mechanism imposed by government, still it hasn't worked. And so when new cautious labour say the issue is not ownership but regulation, what regulation works for the companies and the customers uh, in this particular market? And I don't know the answer to that, and I suspect Labour don't know the answer to that. Which brings us to the taboo. Uh, And in a way, for Labour, the taboo has become greater since the Corbyn era, which is ownership. Uh, New Labour did many things uh, and introduced many changes that improve the quality of people's lives. Um, One thing they didn't challenge was the triumphant win of the Thatcherite right of the Conservative Party in relation to the issue of ownership in the 1980s. And the context, it, it remains a sort of underexplored issue because the orthodoxy has been it was a triumph and can never really be challenged. And yet, what happened was fascinating. I mean, Thatcher became a great uh, proponent or supporter of privatisation in the 80s, partly for very short-term reasons. She wanted the money, uh, and she needed the money. Uh, Public spending was tight. She wanted to introduce various tax cuts, and so this was a way of getting in some money in the short term. Harold Macmillan famously described it as selling off the family silver. And it remains quite a powerful observation, that from Macmillan, because it was sold off quite cheaply and would always prove impossibly expensive to get back, uh, which was one of the flaws of Labour's uh, manifesto in both 2017 and 2019, where they proposed extensive renationalization without fully explaining how they were going to pay for it just to get it back forget about improvements in services which cost money uh, just the mechanism uh, but it was a selling off partly to get the money only later did it become a sort of defining theme of thatcherism uh, which few dared to question in terms of its efficacy so for example when the railways were and remain chaotically delivered uh, under the privatization system and incidentally the government's current proposals will be another chaotic mess um nobody said oh yeah but the last thing we want is to go back to the days of british rail as if that was the only option available and incidentally, uh, the transport specialist, friend of mine, Christian Walmart, has written a book, which is, I think, coming out this year, on British Rail, challenging some of the myths about that period. Uh, it was in many ways a calamity, but not always. And it never had the funding that actually has been blown on sustaining the chaos of the fractured railway system with its multi-layered agencies and the cost of making pitches to get deals and contracts renewed or all the rest of it. Um, And so 
when people say, oh, yeah, well, you don't want to go back to British Rail, mate, whatever the problem with this, you know, you know, wait a minute and reflect on whether that is the only option. Other governments run a relatively efficient state-owned railway systems, and there are many models beyond British Rail uh, which could be explored if this taboo could be broken. And it seems to me the same with the energy market. And I've just come back from uh, a, a guided walking holiday for a few days. A lot of people there, Telegraph readers, strong Tories, and quite a few of them in conversations mentioned to me the fact that they thought uh, the energy market was a disaster area and that it should be state-owned. Now, the issue has always been, and the problem which the Corbyn Easter wing never addressed of the Labour Party, is how you pay for this, how you pay back to get some of this family silver back. And the answer, it seems to me, is when these companies go bust in the energy market, uh, the government can take it over, as has happened with various train companies. When they went bust, the government took over you know, the London to Edinburgh line or whatever. Um, and gradually acquires a greater stake and commits to modern ways of planning. Water is another one, by the way, where it seems to me you can regulate and regulate to the point where companies can't cope with it uh, because there's no space to make much of a profit. Um, and so they go bust and therefore the system does the market just doesn't work. Um, and you know, the whole thing about sewage going into rivers and the sea and all the rest of it. It's somehow another kind of metaphor for a marketplace that doesn't work. And I think this issue of ownership is really interesting. Uh, because why, you know, people say, oh, the left are obsessed with ownership. And say, no, no, it's not the case. It is the Thatcherite right that uh, sees the issue of ownership and became obsessed with it. Uh, you know, so their privatizations were as obsessive and ideological and not as effective as mythology has suggested. Now, Labour, uh, partly, as I say, because of the Corbyn era, but not solely that, have become very timid about the issue of ownership. I think one of the reasons Ed Miliband lost his business brief in the shadow cabinet reshuffle was that he still talked about ownership or what he called common ownership. Um, and it scared the life out of the current leadership who look in some respects to the mid-1990s as a guide to electoral success now. Uh, mistakenly in many ways, not always, uh, there are lessons to be learned from the symphonic dance of New Labour from 94 to 97. Uh, deep lessons, which haven't yet been fully learned, it seems to me. Um, but there, this is a whole new era. And I think that you don't say we're going to spend billions taking over from private companies, because that would be a total waste of money when there isn't much money around. But there is another way of doing it, which is this stealthy uh, ownership. And I think it would prove popular. 
because, in other words, when private companies, whether it's railways, water companies, cannot deliver the demands that people, all people, by the way, uh, many Tory voters demand, um, the state can take them over over time uh, when they cannot meet the demands and sort of bail out. Um, what cannot happen is a sort of mad thing where you sort of propose to take over everything and pay over billions in compensation. But I think see an alternative route and one that could be a vote winner for a party that dares to do it. As I say, as is often the case, it was the Tory party under May, heavily influenced by Nick Timothy, who began the practical process of intervening more in these markets. Anyway, I reckon that's going to be one of the themes of um, uh, of the year, beginning with the torrent of fears about price rises, especially, famously, already gas prices. And then questions about whether these markets work and what regulatory route there is to make them work, given so many interventions have been tried and failed. So that's one. Another, dare I mention it, um, is Brexit. Uh, you know, th- this has become the other great taboo in British politics. And yet it seems to me that in some respects, uh, it's going worse than the Remainers argued during that uh, Brexit referendum, because in the referendum, it wasn't at all clear what form Brexit would take. Now we know um, it is genuinely shocking what is happening. And with the rules of origin coming in uh, from January the 1st, trade becomes even more bureaucratic and cumbersome, and getting around for individuals becomes more bureaucratic and cumbersome. And there will be, and believe it or not, it might even make it onto timid outlets like the BBC and so on, there will be news stories about delays for people trying to get across the channel and there will be new stories about shortages of food and other goods because of the new bureaucratic system. And you keep on hearing more and more examples of the downsides of Brexit, people being able to uh, uh, unable to work. I mean, already famously, musicians are in torment about it, including people like Roger Daltrey, who campaigned for Brexit. And there are others. And uh, what I think might surface is, I think the current Labour leadership is too cautious and too lacking in dexterity to frame arguments yet about how bad it is all going. But I think what might happen is some of those who voted Brexit, like farmers, the musicians and others, fishermen, uh, might start screaming and pleading for ways in which the UK can trade more freely with the biggest market on its doorstep, rather than parading trade deals with Australia, which benefit Australia rather than the UK. Now, up until now, the chaos has not been reported. It's been utterly surreal. You can all sense the chaos, but the silence in much of the media and in politics means it's sort of strangely sinister and discordant 
you know, kind of, oh, yeah, this is a disaster. But no one dares to talk about the disaster unfolding. Well, I think it will become more talked about in the coming 12 months. The fate of this government, the fate of uh, Sunak and Truss, the great ambitious potential prime ministers, at least one of whom will become a prime minister we never had in the next volume of my book on prime ministers we never had, um, perhaps both, um, will be interesting, as will Johnson, as will Keir Starmer. Big year for him. Uh, begins it well ahead in the polls. Can he cast that spell? Which means that because of the poll lead, he is seen more widely as a likely next prime minister or prime minister but one if there's another yet another internal tory leadership contest while they're still in power um big questions but i thought i'd just reflect on that the the failure of some of these markets to deliver and the failure of for all the good intentions to regulate in ways that make it work for the companies and the users and brexit Um, enough, enough, enough. Over to all of you who kept on going during um, the Christmas New Year period. Um, Nate from North London, couple of uh, observations. I'm a long-time listener. Love the show. Thank you very much. Thank you that you love it. But he's got a couple of bones to pick um, with me. He says, your defence of Corbyn on anti-Semitism baffles me. Clearly, uh, there was a point when the problem was so acute that his failure to fully acknowledge it was itself anti-Semitic. His insistence that he was doing all he could was essentially gaslighting the Jewish community. Um, disclosure, I'm not only Jewish, I'm Israeli, and I suffered anti-Semitic abuse in the Labour Party for the first time once Corbyn was la Labour. Uh, secondly, in your most recent episode, you agreed with a listener who Blair, who said Blair was centre-right. Don't think he said centre-right, or she, whoever wrote in. I think she compared him with the Christian Democrats in Germany, uh, Nate, um, uh, because of his stance on public service delivery. And uh, Nate says this is wrong. Firstly, while Blair clearly saw a role for the market in public service delivery, he did so from a perspective that public services should be well funded, a big difference from figures such as Rory Stewart and Jeremy Hunt. And secondly, that public services, um, public service is only one, though important, aspect of ad administration. And it's important to look at Blair's role in lifting so many children and pensioners out of poverty, etc. So to take the first one, I, I think we're going round in circles here. I completely agree that um, with that massive uh, increase in membership under Corbyn, some of those who came in were vile in their anti-Semitism and should have been kicked out more quickly. Uh, and Starmer took this as a priority from day one. And as far as I can tell... Um, has been effective in addressing the issue. Uh, the, the, the sole issue I have, as you know, and where we, we, we're going to go around in circles on, A, was Corbyn 
anti-Semitic himself? And was there enough evidence to prove that point? Uh, I don't think there was, uh, but I know many of you disagree with me. B, was it strategically correct um, to kick him out? And on that second point, kick him, sorry, kick him out of the Labour Party. I wasn't saying kick him out of the pub or whatever. Um, on that second point, I am absolutely sure it was strategically disastrous. Now, we can argue about the moral case, and, and that, I agree, is um, uh, up for grabs. But um, because I know many of you think he was anti-Semitic, of course, if he was, out he goes, along with the others. I don't, but I know you disagree with me. But on the strategic point, um, uh, it's, it's been a complete disaster because you just have to look back to the period before it happened. Uh, Starmer had a really effective start as Labour leader on many fronts, including beginning to change the Labour Party. He sorted the party headquarters out um, and did so with the broad support even of those who had backed Corbyn. And then in, I think it was September, uh, he uh, first of all, Corbyn was kicked out of the Labour Party, he was then brought back but suspended uh, from the whip of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And ever since, before then, Corbyn was just, you know, getting on with what he likes doing, which is campaigning locally in Islington and attending rallies and stuff like that. Um, he wasn't being talked about in the media. He wasn't being sort of revered as he was once before by the left. He was just, you know, a, a figure lurking quietly, as defeated leaders usually are. The election defeat was the uh, kind of discipline on Jeremy Corbyn, if you like. Uh, people who are leaders who are slaughtered in elections have, in a way for the rest of their lives, a, a, a sense that things have gone badly wrong. And that was there. And Starmer had begun to change the Labour Party. And incidentally, with a big focus from day one on tackling the anti-Semitism that arose with that massive, uh, uncontrolled membership. Um, then he was suspended. And from that moment on, um, it, so much of the situation internally with the Labour Party was viewed through the prism of an angry Corbyn Easter left gunning for Starmer, Starmer being seen as preoccupied by internal matters, gunning for Corbyn, and incidentally, voters only noticing the battle, uh, not that, you know, oh, Cor Corbyn's out, that means he's changed the Labour Party. And now he's in an impossible dilemma, as I predicted on day one, I went on Newsnight and said it, when everyone else was saying this is a brilliant, strong act of leadership. If he brings him back in, all hell will break loose. If he keeps him out, all hell will break loose. And I just think it's a strategic um, error. But I completely respect uh, your point um, about the anti-Semitism that erupted. How can I not do when you experience the abuse yourself? Um, uh, the, the second point on Blair is really interesting. There is no doubt you can list a whole range of measures and reforms that New Labour brought in, which in, in many, in, well, well, in some respects, 
compares with the 45 Labour government, the, the one that is revered for its reformist zeal. Um, but what's interesting about Tony Blair, certainly at the time, uh, he would himself have not put, he used to describe himself as being on the radical centre, a phrase I regard with a great deal of suspicion because it is so imprecise. Now, maybe he did that at the time uh, because he was so fearful uh, of the Murdoch newspapers and others if he uttered the word centre-left, um, that uh, radical centre was all he could dare proclaim to define himself. Um, but there were times, and indeed the public service reforms are an example of it, where his tendency was to follow the Thatcherite guidebook, uh, the NHS reforms of Ken Clark. Uh, when he was health secretary, was the kind of model for some of the reforms that Blair then pursued. Um, now, this was absolutely with much bigger increases in public spending, one of the great achievements of that Labour government. Um, but he, he, I think, was almost deliberately hard to define. And I recently read again his memoir, which is fantastically written, vivid, funny, absolutely his voice. Um, but it's quite hard to argue at times um, that he I even saw himself as the centre-left, a figure of the centre-left. And he talked a lot towards the end of his premiership about the era of cross-dressing, uh, where figures from one side were dressing up in the figures of the other side. And he actually has argued that there was no longer a left and right, only open versus closed and so on, uh, which I do think is a naive interpretation of politics now or at any other given time. Um, but I, I kind of admire him on many, many levels. Um, but I think his place on the political spectrum is is much harder to read. Um, but anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Sean Briggs writes on a similar theme. Uh, I was thinking, it's in, is it possible to be a Blairite without embracing Tony Blair? Uh, not easily, Sean, is my answer to that, because the 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 binding force of Blairism is indeed Tony Blair. It's quite interesting when you try and follow self-called Blairites. There are quite a lot of differences within them. You know, I, I always used to say to uh, my old colleague, John Rental, who is an utterly, you know, the independent, the columnist, utterly evangelical Blairite, as he considers it himself. And yet, uh, John Rental is a Eurosceptic, uh, where Tony Blair would see himself as a passionate pro-European. Uh, John Rental supported uh, the Ed Ball's economic policies in response to the 2008 crash. Uh, Tony Blair was more critical, and so on. So even when you pitch a Blairite to the to Blair. You, you you start to see differences, but it is unquestionably the case that the figure 
has many, many devotees. Alistair Campbell's another. Is he a Blairite? He just, he had doubts about the public service reforms. Um, his partner, Fiona, more so. Are they Blairites? But they admire him. It's, so it's complicated. Uh, the, the big election winners for the two main parties are all complex figures for the parties to make sense of. Thatcher with the Tories, uh, Wilson and Blair with Labour. Um, and that's no coincidence, I suspect, um, for different reasons. Of the Labour ones, they avoid precise definition. Thatcher, because she transformed the party into the ideological right-wing party it is to this very day. And you can see hints of change, but not not enough. Um, back to One Nation Toryism. Andrew Kitching has been analysing over Christmas and New Year and what better thing to do uh, when governments fall and the context when there's a change of party in government, partly based on a Matthew Paris column. Um, And uh, he notes as a conclusion, I think there's a small chance of a government collapse now as Steve Baker's lot, Steve Baker, the, the rebel, the born rebel, the the MP who just loves rebelling, not governing. Uh, Steve Baker's lot are a party within a party and could make life very difficult for Johnson or his successor. That's a key point, I think, Andrew. I think uh, a successor is not guaranteed an easy life if we have the drama of a change in 2022 and what a drama that will be. Now we need to get through to our regular correspondent in France, Dominique Jewell, to give us an update on what really is happening in France, because we're told here Britain is world world beating, uh, testing, world beating everything. Uh, Dominique Jewell writes, in the context of reports of shortages in the supply of lateral flow tests in England, they had to borrow a load from Wales over New Year. I thought you might be interested in knowing that the French municipal authorities in Alsace have today attached drawstring bags onto the handlebars of every scooter for hire, each of which contains a free lateral flow test. Forget it. We're we're the well-beating ones, Dominique. Not not you lot. Not you lot. Um, Okay. Uh, Robert Bromberg writes... Uh, firstly, I listen to rock and roll politics, walking several miles each morning in the northern Gloucestershire countryside, a few miles from Tewkesbury. I begin and finish at my house, and Robert's very kindly sent a photo of his house and his walk, which I'd love to show to all of you, because we, but we'd all just get jealous, as it is just me who's jealous with the house and the walk. Uh, I begin and finish at my house and at some point on this gentle ramble walk on the path by the River Severn over some fields and around the meandering country lanes Uh, and during one of these walks he framed a question after one year out of the EU are there any pluses or advantages that you can see that lead to any optimism whatsoever for Britain in the future no, I can't, Robert. Uh, it gets me down and angry, and I know it does some of some of the rest of us, um, what's happening here. And I'm now beginning to think, you know, this thing, this kind of conclusion I've almost surprised myself with, that you cannot regulate the uh, uh, energy market to make it work, you, you know. Uh, and I'm talking about for the companies as well as the users. Um, 
I'm now beginning to think that you cannot stealthily get close to to Europe to make it work. You've got to get back in. I don't know how that happens, uh, but I think this will become a matter of urgency, actually, unless I kind of... I just can't see a way around this thing that many companies have been largely dependent on that European market. We here are, not least in things like food. And it's just going to be a bureaucratic nightmare unless we get back in and get back in under the terms we used to have. I mean, Osborne, who's a poor campaigner in many ways, called it the best of both worlds uh, in the Brexit referendum. And he's sort of right. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I, but how that ever happens, um, I don't know. I, You could see a big, big figure moving towards that and sorting out some of these failed markets, but it would need to be a figure of mountainous proportions to have the courage and vision to navigate a way through, I suspect. Simon, thank you, Robert. Enjoy your walk. Uh, You might be doing it in the snow soon and it will be just romantic. Uh, Simon Harmer writes, a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you, Simon. Uh, Yeah, I remember we kind of worked together once on uh, the Today programme every now and again. Uh, Do you think the political maxim, it's the economy, stupid, still holds true? In last week's edition, you didn't mention the economic backdrop I can't. I hope I've made up for it a bit today, Simon, with the look at the um, inflation looming. Um, yeah, Simon says, which looks less rosy by the day. Inflation 5% and rising. Interest rates up, albeit from historic lows. And wholesale energy prices surging and tax rises to kick in next April. If people feel poorer, will they blame the government covid or brexit yeah i i do believe um the political maxim it's the economy stupid still applies um when you look back to the fall of that labor government the 2008 crash was a key moment um it's it was not the only contribution to the fall of that labor government but it was a massive one and it enabled uh, cameron and osborne to frame an argument around the government's alleged economic incompetence. And I agree with you, uh, Simon, that these are going to be the ingredients by April. You know, it's really funny, isn't it? You always say, oh, Happy New Year, here's to 2022. I said it, I think, at the beginning of the podcast. But we've got some pretty gloomy things coming down the track. Now, it's interesting when you say it's very hard to tell these days with voters who they blame um voters at the moment uh are pretty bad at making the connections uh you know things happen to them and in the past to a fault they used to blame governments and prime ministers you know if it rained oh that bloody blair it's raining you know with johnson they don't meet the connections they did chose not to see what was happening in front of their eyes but there is now a sign via the most accessible of the stories the parties johnson was holding allegedly uh or work dues as he puts them or he doesn't even say that work work that's what we were doing um 
Well, anyway, that has been the way in which they now see what is in front of their eyes. So uh, the government will certainly seek to blame COVID. Um, They certainly won't seek to blame Brexit. Uh, I think it might be too early by the spring for voters to notice the Brexit impact. But I think they might soon if COVID fades a bit, because a lot of the things that are proving nightmarish for Britain in 2022 will be down to Brexit, uh, not COVID. Uh, But I think the economy stupid remains absolutely at the heart of politics and always will. And it means it's going to be a difficult few months, I think, for Johnson and indeed Rishi Sunak and the government. Um, Tim Drew from Brighton. Um, Oh, yeah, thought we'd have to have an electoral reform uh, question. Uh, You know, it being the start of 2022. I know some of you are looking forward to an electoral reform special. Not yet, but it will come, I promise you. Um, He notes that the current voting system, Tim, that produces poor policies and increasingly poor politicians. It's true, actually, about the second. What are the factors that lead to increasingly poor politicians? And one might be the voting system. Um, But he says he agrees with me that it's difficult to see the best solution. And in my view, Tim, on all fronts, the best solution as to how you get to a new voting system and what that voting system should be. Um, uh, So, but we'll reflect on it more over 2022, uh, Tim, if that's okay with you. And I know some of you will be as well as, uh, yeah, you convert me and others towards that particular cause. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And Tim, although is there, in terms of he thinks it will create new parties and that could be a healthy boost to British politics um, and a greater range of parties, all with some claim to be able to win some seats. But but which system and how? And is it worth all that political energy when there are so many other challenges? That's where I remain kind of sceptical. Anyway, if it's okay with you, I'm going to stop now. A bit shorter than usual, uh, but it will be... uh, Most of you will have had time to have a decent run, walk, bake your bread, cooked a beautiful dinner in Italy and all the things that I know go on while you're listening to the podcast. Um, There will be much more at the beginning of next week, uh, first thing Tuesday morning. Uh, And do book your tickets for King's Place on January the 24th. Thanks for brilliant questions. Sorry if I didn't get through them all today, um, recording this over the kind of New Year period. Um, But keep them coming in. Oh, yeah, I better give you the email address because some of you might not have it. So here it is. Okay, I, you, know, you know, I still struggle to learn it off by heart. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. And the tickets for January the 24th live at King's Place or the live stream for the global audience is on the King's Place website. Thank you so much. Have a great first week of 2022. And as those brilliant questions suggested, we're going to have a lot to make sense of as we meet up each week. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye.